Welcome to Books and Beyond with your hosts, Karen and Luisa. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations, and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl, and she works in a lab. Kia ora, listeners. Kia ora, Alison. Kia ora. Today, Alison and I are talking literary power couples. Now, how did you think of that, you might say? Well... It all started when Alison broke the news to me the other day that literary power couple Jonathan Safran Foer and Nicole Krauss had separated. Apparently, even already a couple of years ago. <laughs> is how behind the times I am. So, but actually, wasn't it Alison? You thought they had. You weren't absolutely sure. You weren't. Maybe you were thought you were thinking of the wrong Jonathan. Um, there are quite a few of them on the American literary scene, and there's quite a few Nicoles as well. So I did get a bit worried yeah. there. But, yeah. <laughs> Multiple Jonathans in. Nicole's, and there's a movie star involved in the breakup, which, however, was not Nicole Kidman, but was Natalie Portman. So, um, yeah, I used to get confused, um, I'm sure much more than you did. So, which of the Jonathans is this? So, this is the Jonathan who wrote that amazing novel, um, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Which is about the World Trade Tower. Yes, yes. and a young, a young boy who loses his father, isn't it? And that made yeah. him a sort of a literary wunderkind, as I understand mm. it. But he did go downhill fast, it seems to me, or maybe I'm condensing it into one long, one short fall instead of one long fall. Um, so for me, I think the um, the drop that what is what is how do you say it? The bridge, you know, the drop that made the bucket overflow <laughs> or the, the last straw the, the last straw something that broke the, the straw that broke the camel's back was um, when it, I, he revealed that he makes his kids play a game at dinner time in their Brooklyn um, brownstone, brownstone yeah. in their 14 million dollar Brooklyn brownstone called Wonderline at the dinner table they have to tell him five things that generate wonder if they want to choose their after dinner entertainment I'm not sure what the entertainment is I'm probably. shaking my head yeah. <laughs> and we're thinking that the after dinner entertainment is probably not um, PlayStation, right? So I learned this Googling them to verify if they had indeed split. And there was an incredible number of hits about the end of this literary power couple's marriage. And when I looked at the details, I was really surprised because it was only a 10-year marriage. It's almost like a starter marriage for a literary <laughs> power couple if you put them up against ones like Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre who were um, a couple for 51 years. Or Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein. How many were they? Uh, about 40. About 40, yeah. so getting up there. Um, anyway, more interesting than the number of years was the fact that apparently they have indulged in literary relationship revenge. The literary form, mm. which consists of writing semi-autobiographical novels about their time together. So hers was called Forest Dark, and um, in the, what I found in my Googling uh, review by the Washington Post that found it uncomfortably passive-aggressive in relation to their um, marital story, and his was called Here I Am. So this had me thinking of the tragic F. Scott Fitzgerald and the beautiful Zelda, the emblematic Jazz Age couple, Jazz Age, among other things, being a term that he invented, um, who, when their marriage and their lives were crashing out of control, each wrote their own autobiographical novel about it. And he had the gall to get angry with her <laughs> because hers got published first. 
<laughs> so um, Zelda and Scott are way up there in the pantheon of literary power couples. Although in their case, unlike Simone and Jean-Paul or Alice and Gertrude, you can't talk about their power to invent themselves without talking about their power for self-destruction. Mm-hmm. When they met, so he was an aspiring writer. She was a society golden girl, um, daughter of a judge in the Deep South in Alabama. When they got married, she was only 20. This is the other thing. The so ages. So young. So young. They were extremely young, extremely gorgeous, famous, talented, fetid, just a socialite couple um, with the world at their feet. When they took off for Paris, they were photographed. I think it was Vogue magazine. Um, Paris in those interwar years being the mecca for Americans who were looking to be able to drink, because let's not forget mm-hmm. that it was prohibition in America, and to be able to live cheaply so they could pursue their dreams. Um, and Many of them, including Zelda and Scott, stayed too long at the fair, is the phrase mm-hmm. that Joan Didion invented for in her. She was writing about her stay in New York, but it's just such a great term, isn't it? That yeah. Just, it's possible, she says, to stay too long at the fair. And she talks about the realization of that moment. I'm not sure. Yeah, no, they definitely, Scott and Zelda definitely had the realization of the moment. But it came after many years during which he wanted to be a great writer which he had the talent to be, and Zelda wanted to be a professional ballet dancer, which she couldn't be because she'd taken it up hopelessly too late. Um, I'm not sure if it was a thing, this studying ballet in Paris, uh, that all rich young American women did um, when they went to Europe. Um, when I lived in Italy, they were all there doing life drawing classes. <laughs> but my grandmother, who stayed for France in the same year, or maybe the year after, I can't remember, the Fitzgeralds, also studied ballet with the Ballet Russe in France. Um, I picture the Ballet Russe making a lot of money off of these American heiresses, yes. <laughs> just like the art Very schools in Florence. Did. Very smart. Yeah. Um, my grandmother, who was a woman of few illusions, said that she did it just long enough to justify her grand tour, which included um, a ball at the American ambassador's residence, where, according to a newspaper clipping I treasure, she, the headline, she enlivened a dull evening by showing off some new dance steps. So well, <laughs> I think this is clearly something that she and Zelda had in common. Zelda wrote essays and magazine pieces, one called Who Can Fall in Love After 30? Goodness. Good question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, her one book was Save Me the Waltz. And this is the book to which I'm referring when I say the semi-autobiographical novel. She wrote it in two months during one of her first confinements in a mental hospital. It's really heartbreaking. She um, has this piercing insight at the end that I um, just hurts me every time I think of it. So she describes them. She Alabama's she alter ego in the book and David um, seeming like people picking over their old garments that were left over from a time when they had more wealth. Mm-hmm. It just you know the end of a relationship. How well does that describe the end of a relationship? Um, but the book is also full of life and really rich with atmosphere. Um, it's got some digs um, at Scott, such as where Alabama sees as her husband passes off her clever sayings as his own. Mm. Something mm, yes. <laughs> possibly not, um, not restricted just to Scott and Zelda. Um, but anyway, his book is Tender as the Night. Um, oh, because that's such a beautiful book. 
title isn't, isn't it, it? I've always loved that yeah 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 the night. I yeah. actually looked up once um where the title comes from because you know I have this thing about where do these I can hear it and I say where does this title come from so it, it comes from Ode to a Nightingale which oh. I should have known because I actually have a, um, a tea mug with Ode to a Nightingale <laughs> written on it Keith's manuscript um but it's, you know, scribbly and light brown. Um, I bought it at the Keys House in Rome. Oh. Anyway, so the line in Ode to Nightingale is, Already with thee, tender is the night, but here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways. Mm. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and already tragic. Something yes. already tragic. <laughs> so, um, in fact, Scott called the book... Uh, the long, tragic story of the last seven years when he gave a copy of the book to Zelda's psychiatrist, which I think was pretty shabby. Yeah, <laughs> it I is. His version it's a of one the story. sided Yeah, exactly. Story, His version. Isn't it? Yeah. So Scott's alter ego in the book is Dick Diver or Dick Diver. <laughs> I'm going to say it that way because there's actually a widely respected literary interpretation um, that, including in the in the introduction, referred to in the introduction to the Penguin edition of the book, which I recently <laughs> had out to read to re look at in preparation for this, um, as a phallic symbol. It's interpreted as definitely Dick. Diver being a phallic mm. symbol. Dick Diver becomes an alcoholic, which Fitzgerald did, but in the book, it's all the fault of his wife, Nicole's illness. Another Nicole? Yeah. Gee, there's a lot of them. <laughs> Good right. point. Yeah. I hadn't actually thought about that. Um, when actually Scott Fitzgerald was already an alcoholic when he met Zelda, and it ends with his career in tatters, which it definitely was by the end of their marriage. Um, he, so in the book, it's also got a really chilling ending where um, he's talking with a woman who is chiding him for his drinking, and he starts mouthing platitudes at her, as you do when you're being chided for bad behavior and especially if relating to substance abuse and she is eagerly responding to him and all he can hear is this interior laughter mounting up in him and it gets so loud that he can't hear her anymore and he just turns and walks off so Nicole stays on the Riviera with a new husband and he goes back to America where his letters arrive from ever smaller towns ever more out of sight Mm -hmm. in reality what happened was they both went back to America before long Scott put Zelda in a mental hospital and he put himself into a series of dry out hospitals. I think there were nine altogether and eventually ended up in Hollywood to write screenplays which he found so degrading that of course it made him all the more susceptible to drinking binges and he died aged only 44 from alcoholism in Hollywood. But um, he and Zelda continued to write to each other all that time. She lived um, another eight years after him, she was burned to death in a fire at her mental hospital again. Which is terrible, <laughs> I know, isn't it? Just yes. death, dis- yes. destruction everywhere. But her letters are really amazing. Some of them survive, and you can get them in the collected um, writings of Zelda Fitzgerald. She never defends herself or justifies herself. She says she's sorry that she made trouble. She um, calls him darling and dodo, possibly doo-doo, tells him that he's always been, this is a beautiful phrase, the deep current running through her heart and always will be. Mm, beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Well, um, my um, first power couple had uh, quite a devoted relationship as well, um, particularly where one looked after the other through a, a very lengthy illness. 
And so I'm um, speaking about Jane and Paul Bowles, um, who were both born in New York in the early 1900s. Um, and they were members of that New York intellectual bohemian set. Uh, they met at a party. Mm-hmm. So how many Jonathans did they know? Oh, yes, they probably, <laughs> yes, and probably a few Nicoles as well, <laughs> particularly at the party where they met in 1937, and they were married soon after that. I think it was the next year. But interestingly, the biographer uh, Jeffrey Myers called them the oddest couple, um, and they they were, I, I guess, they had a uh, what was known as a lavender marriage um, because they were both gay and they both had relationships with other people while they were married to each other. Um, and Jane famously said, "Paul and I are so incompatible that we should be in a museum." And I think that's a, a wonderful phrase. Yeah, I can think of a few relationships <laughs> that yes. reminds me of. That's right. Um, but they're, having said all that, their partnership worked and they were devoted to each other. Um, and Paul was a, a musician and a, a composer as well as a writer. He studied composition in Paris with um, the great Aaron Copeland, the great American um, composer, and um, he had a, a relationship with Copeland as well. Um, so Paul and Jane um, travelled. They they visited so many countries. They were uh, really travelled extensively throughout their marriage and they uh, really immersed themselves in the cultures of the places that they travelled to. Um, they spent quite a bit of time in Central America um, in Europe, of course, but they eventually settled in Tangier, Morocco. Now, it was interesting, it was a small world, I guess, because Gertrude Stein was the one that suggested they, they try living in Tangier, and it was because it was cheap. It was a cosmopolitan city, and it had mild weather, good beaches, and easily available drugs. So I guess what more could you want? Well, maybe easily available sex, but <laughs> probably. Gertrude probably knew one more than the devil related to that as well about Morocco, right? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, and the expats who lived in um, Tangier felt quite liberated from the, the American puritanism of the time. Um, now, Jane um, was very insightful writing ab- about tourists, actually, in the book Two Serious Ladies, which was published in 1943. I love this book. But she said, tourists, generally speaking, are human beings so impressed with the immutability of their own manner of living that they're capable of travelling through the most fantastic places without experiencing anything more than a visual reaction. Mm. And I thought, isn't that... It's so true. You could add in today's time taking constant photographs of the visual reaction that you're having, of yes. the visuality that you're seeing, because Rather than in her time, being. yeah, in her yeah. time, cameras were still heavy and expensive, and it was a more of a rarity, but... Yeah, but um, people still do that, and so many travel writers do that too, don't they? They, they don't really immerse themselves in the, the culture. Um, now, Jane was um, very much influenced by Gertrude Stein and um, Two Serious Ladies is, is quite rambling and repetitive um, and the critics at the time said that it descended into nonsense um, and so Jane was devastated by the negative reviews that she received and she, as a result, she suffered 
um, throughout her career from terrible writer's block, which I guess is understandable. Now, Paul Bowles, um, perhaps his best-known book is The Sheltering Sky, published 1949. Um, and we we think that that's probably due to the fact that it was made into a film um, by Bertolucci. Um, but also, it was very well written. And um, it's quite um, autobiographical, really, because it centres on a, a married couple who are from New York, um, and they travel to the North African desert. And um, they're trying to resolve their marital difficulties, but they get into all sorts of danger largely because of ignorance of the the land and the culture. And so Paul and Jane really both um, really just wrote about themselves and their own relationship. Um, A curious tidbit, actually, is that Paul absolutely detested Jane's uh, long-time lover, um, who was uh, Sharifa, and Paul was um, convinced that Sharifa was casting spells on him and causing him harm, whether or not she was, who knows. Um, So now in Tangier, Jane and Paul had many visitors to their salon, um, and Gore Vidal, this was, I thought this quite amusing, he said that Paul and Jane were famous among those who were famous. And I guess that's a bit like famous, being famous for being famous, mm, like many of the Nicoles. Yes, yes. <laughs> these days. I was going to say, possibly one step up from many of the Nicoles. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, and uh, Jane was ill for many years. Um, she suffered depression and from alcoholism as well. And when she was only 40, she had a stroke. And um, But for the next 16 or so years, Paul looked after her faithfully. Um, it would have been pure hell for both of them. But after she died in 1973, Paul didn't produce any more original work and it was almost as if he'd lost his muse. Um, I think they had a, a really symbiotic relationship. I think they needed each other um, and they, they fed off each other creatively. Um, and so for the next 25 years, Paul had quite a diminished life in Tangier, although he still kept receiving visitors. Yeah, I was going to say, diminished life, you'd have to, you know, he did smoke a lot of keef, <laughs> the Moroccan version of hashish, and so maybe his little room where he was sitting didn't seem as diminished inside his head as it might to us looking from the outside. quite expanded, actually. Yeah, and he did receive, you know, over the years, all of these literary figures making pilgrimages, in particular the Beats, um, so um, William Burroughs actually stayed four years in Tangier, wrote Naked Lunch there while he was there and Allen Ginsberg came through with Peter Olofsky, Gregory Corso and um, Jack Kerouac who actually only stayed a month um, because he uh, possibly because my own uh, suspicion is because Car- um, Bowles seems to have set him to typing his manuscripts possibly from his typing fame <laughs> generated from when he published on the road typed in what was it a single week on a single piece of paper but yeah no I um, I totally with you I just love these stories of literary travels and sojourns because they combine two great subjects which are of course you know travel and love and so I've got another super literary power couple story here. 
So um, he is a poet, rebel, free thinker, and member of the aristocracy, which provides him with an allowance to be able to pursue all these interests without having to get a job. This is not a dig. It's just the way it was in the 1800s. We're talking 1812, 1814, just post-Napoleonic Europe. Now, instead, we have grants and fellowships. <laughs> At the home of his hero, William Godwin, the godfather of radical political philosophy, he meets his daughter, just back from a trip to Scotland, age 16, looking very nice in her tartan dresses. Her mother was the revolutionary feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, author of A Vindication of the Rights of Women, who, however, had died soon after giving birth to her. And she is beautiful, extremely intelligent, and he's fascinated by her. And although they can't marry, because he's already married, they elope together, taking along with them her stepsister, who probably didn't want to bear the brunt of their father's anger when he found out, and head for Paris. Can you say, guess who I'm saying here? the clue for me is the Mary Wollstonecraft, the, the feminist. So I'm thinking Mary. You're thinking the daughter. you know. <laughs> the daughter, yeah, no. <laughs> so if you know Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, yes, her daughter Mary. Mary. So ten points. Um, <laughs> Percy Shelley, one of the most famous of the romantic poets, and Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. Mm. So this is, they take off for Paris, and then they want to get to Switzerland, but they haven't got any money left. They can't hire a carriage, so they actually walk to Switzerland. Goodness. <laughs> this is romantics, you know. Mm. Is, this, is this the romantic lifestyle? They have a donkey for their suitcases, although um, Percy chose it poorly and it didn't actually work, they say. It didn't work out as they thought. Mm. They last a month in Switzerland before money travels, troubles, excuse me, force them back to England, where their family still refuse to see them. So in the end, they do, after various travails, they do what the British have always done when your lifestyle just doesn't fit with staid Protestant England. You go to the continent. Of course you do. They and the stepsister Claire and Byron, who had met them, had met Claire the year before and with whom Claire had fallen in love. Byron was not so convinced and he was also married, but not convinced by that either. Converge in Switzerland for the summer and that was the most famous literary summer ever. The one where one stormy night Byron decreed they should each tell a ghost story, and Mary told Frankenstein. She was 18. She was 18. It's incredible, isn't it? She already had a child by Shelley. It was her second pregnancy. Her first um, child had died soon after birth. Um, she's, this is another constant refrain that runs through the, uh, the infant mortality in those days. So Shelley was enthusiastic, unlike some men. Um, about her literary talent as she emerged, her storytelling talent, and he encouraged her to turn it into a novel. He edited, he looked for publishers. She finished it nine months later, and it did get published and made her an established writer, more than Shelley, whose works were almost still all in manuscript. They both continued to write and enjoyed the rented villas with servants you could get on the continent. Then they went to Italy to take Claire, when in the meantime it had a baby by Byron. <laughs> <laughs> the only one who had enough money, they was going to hand her over, hand the little baby girl over to Byron, who had enough money to take care of her. And that, of course, is where Shelley met his tragic death by drowning in his boat, um, his recently purchased boat. He wasn't even 30. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like I say, there's this refrain of death running through the death of, of innumerable pregnancies, of, of the children of innumerable pregnancies. The sort of carelessness with which you set sail in a boat which you don't really know how to handle there's a storm 
on the, the horizon. That, yeah. yeah. Um, and then Mary returned to England and devoted the rest of her life to publishing his works. She died in her 50s, which I probably was a considered ripe old age mm. in those days. Um, she died in her 50s and she entirely for that whole last period of her life saw her role as keeping Shelley's literary flame alive um, by getting his work published. And um, was being it was helped being taken care of by her son Sir Percy, who one, had one oh. surviving child, who became a country gentleman. Was not an intellectual flame <laughs> <laughs> like his parents, but was a friendly country gentleman. And yes, yeah, but it's great devotion. And look, speaking of keeping the the flame um, burning and looking after the literary legacy. My next couple um, is Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, and they were lifelong partners. They had quite a long relationship, as we were saying before. Um, now, they were both born in America at the end of the 1800s, um, but Gertrude and Alice lived in France from 1907 onwards, and they were part of that um, Parisian literary and artistic avant-garde. Um, and their home was also a salon, um, and it att- attracted a lot of expatriate American writers like Hemingway, um, Paul and Jane Bowles, uh, Thornton Wilder, to name a few. Also, a lot of painters, um, two of which uh, Picasso and Matisse. Which Gertrude was a patron, so she bought their paintings. Yes, and she, yeah. yes, yeah. and uh, accumulated, amassed a lot of wealth through that. Now, they were both um, raised in in California, but they met in Paris in 1907, and they only ever travelled back to the USA once, and that was on a literary tour in 1934. Now, they um, survived um, in France through the two world wars. Um, World War I, they they were volunteer drivers for a hospital, and they were honoured by the French government for, um, for their bravery. Now, in World War Two, they um, moved into the countryside to, to get out of harm's way. They'd been advised to leave France and go to perhaps Switzerland or the USA, but they chose to stay in occupied France. And how they managed to survive is somewhat of a, a mystery, although it does um, seem that they had help and protection to survive because um, as Jewish lesbians... They, they were really <laughs> at risk yeah, they were, by, yeah. by staying in France. Um, now, they were both writers, um, although Gertrude perhaps is the more famous, um, although she was the, a modernist writer and she was known for um, this real experimental and inventive use of language, um, rhythmic, repetitious language, uh, phrases such as a rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. Um, I love her writing, but it's it's got quite a dreamlike quality to it. Um, and um, Alice, dear Alice, was Gertrude's muse, um, secretary, typist, cook, and um, confidant, just like any any wife, I guess. But she's perhaps best known for her culinary masterpiece, the Alice B. Toklas cookbook. Um, and she wrote it because she didn't want to write a memoir. Um, and most of the recipes are for game, like dishes like duck and goose. But the famous one was for a marijuana 
marijuana um, brownies. Brownies, yeah. yes. I don't know why I said it a in that A different sort of game. <laughs> a diff- yes, that's right. And so because of that, um, the book was very famous and it's never really been out of print. When I was growing up in California, those were called Alice B. Toklas brownies. Yes, they, yeah. and I was always too naive to know what they were <laughs> until relatively recently. And Gertrude, oh, yeah, there's so much more we could say about them. Um, for example, the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, written by Gertrude. Gertrude broke all the rules, really. She coined the term the lost generation, which was used by Hemingway. So that referred to the generation between the wars, yes, wasn't it? Yes, yes. You are all a lost generation. Yes, where they were so disillusioned and often self-destructive. As we have seen. So now they um, did amass a lot of wealth. Um, so after Gertrude's death, Alice lived for another 20 years. But sadly, she she um, died in poverty, even though they had those assets, those paintings, but... Um, the paintings had been willed to her. Remember yes. this? They had been willed to her, but the lawyer who was supposed to dole out money for her upkeep, who was actually Edgar Allan Poe, is <laughs> the ne- grand-nephew oh, of the poet, yes, that's right. um, <laughs> refused to give her money, and she was living on the charity of her friends. It was very, very sad. Awful. But she never complained. The, those paintings actually got taken away and put in a bank vault, and she said, doesn't matter in my imagination. I can still see them. I can see them better. She was going blind. She was going she was blind, 90, yes. yeah. Very sad. Yeah. I really recommend this wonderful book. So Paris is just, you know, I've seen this running through our stories here. Um, so where I learned all that was in this wonderful book by Janet Flanner, who was the New Yorker correspondent from Paris um, for many years in those years. And it was called Paris Was Yesterday. We do have mm. Janet Flanner books at the library, so mm. <laughs> highly recommended. And, you know, Alison, I think you and I, we can say we'll always we'll have Paris. Paris. We always will. <laughs> so, hairera, kakite ano. This program was brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and... Catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day, every day, every day.